good morning. My name is Peter, and I have the pleasure of reading from the Scriptures this morning. Uh, if you have one of the church Bibles, uh, you can turn to page 783, uh, and you'll find Matthew chapter 1. We're reading from verse 18 to 25, and the uh, words will also appear on the screen behind me. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what, he, what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Good morning, everyone, and Merry Christmas. Uh, it feels like this morning is a bit of a starting point. To, I feel like I almost want to say, let the games begin with Christmas, because it's a Sunday, we've only got one more day, Christmas Eve, before it all happens Christmas Day. So it's all winding up, and really, if we're not in the swing of Christmas yet, today's the day to sort of kind of try and get into the mood. Uh, we've had great music, we've had great reflections on Jesus coming for us, Jesus the one that was God come, born as a child, and good reason to celebrate that. But this morning we're just going to reflect on that and the difference it makes, not just for 2,000 years ago, but for what difference it makes today. I'm going to pray first, and then we're going to look at this passage we just had read a little bit closer. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this morning that we can get together. We thank you for the freshness in the air, we thank you for the season of joy. We thank you for the season of celebration. And Lord, we just pray that you'd help us now to, to reflect on the significance of Jesus, the significance of Christmas, and how it changes our lives even today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is uh, the Christmas miracle that happens. You know, the Christmas Day, you might recognise uh, this picture off the Woolworths ad, and it paints the real picture of what Christmas Day can look like for you. Maybe it looks like for you and your family where people come home for Christmas to celebrate that as a family together. And if you know the ad on, from Woolworths on telly, yeah, people come from all different areas, they make all this nice food, they're all dressed up, Ma and Pa bring the pavel over, he puts the pavel over on the roof of the car, and you go, oh no, but Christmas is not going to be spoiled because the pavel is going to stay on the roof and they're all going to come together. They walk into the house, everybody's happy, everybody's excited, everybody's got their food, they're dressed up and the scene finishes, they're all around the table doing kisses and hugs and it's all perfect. It's a wonderful Christmas season, wonderful Christmas dinner to celebrate that as a family all come together. And you kind of go, at this point, it's a bit, <laughs> the advertisers are doing their job, right? Advertising sells a dream. It's a bit of a dream. It's far from reality, isn't it? At least my experience of Christmas. Christmas Day is far from that. 
Christmas Day is hot, everybody's dripping in sweat, the kids are ratty, you're running late, the food hasn't turned out, the food's not going to stay on the roof of the car as you drive away, and you turn up, and the last words you, you tell your kids as you're going into the family uh, reunion or the, fifth, the family celebration is, kids, just be good. Just be this one day in the whole year, use your manners, say thank you for any presents, don't fight, and just be nice, be happy, just be perfect. We want the perfect family for the perfect family Christmas, and we want everybody to see everything is going so rosy and so nice. That's the sort of talk that happens before we go into a family uh, gathering, because it's messy. But in fact, we don't just do a Christmas Day, the whole put on the best performance for your cousins and relatives you only see once a year. But we actually do it fairly regularly, don't we? We want to put forward the image of everything is perfect. We got our lives together. And actually, um, I'm going okay. I'm, I'm friendly to come around, be my friend. I want to be accepted. You don't want to be known as the whingy, whiny, ratty, arguing person in the group, whether it's Christmas, whether it's at work, whether it's at uni or school, you don't want to be known as the person, I don't want to hang around them, they're, they're just too much hard work. But if, you, if you're the nice person, if you're the friendly person, if you're the person that's got their life together, people do want, people will accept you, they want to be around you, you'll be loved, you'll be popular and you'll be accepted and to keep up that perfect persona, this game, it's really hard work. It's hard work being perfect. It's hard work measuring up to other people's expectations, let alone hard work being trying to measure up to your own expectations that you want to be presented this way. And we don't just do it with others around us that we're accepted and loved, but we do it with God as well. Actually, you know, I'm the good Christian, particularly here in church circles, that you go, yeah, I have got my life together. Everything's going cruisy. Everything's under control. Little knowing that back home, it's a mess. But we put this, this game, the game face on that we've got it together. Everything's going great. Everything's going perfectly. Just to show that other people, yeah, I, I can be respected. I can be loved. I can be part of the gang because I'm one of you guys. I've got my life together. And we play these games, but we soon realise these games are hard work. It wears us down. One of the songs, one of the carols we sung this morning, talks about the birth of Jesus, and it says, a weary world rejoices. And you kind of go, it's great. We do rejoice at the birth of, of Jesus. Every Christmas we celebrate that. But it's not just everybody celebrates, it's the weary world, a tired world rejoices the fact that Jesus has come. And if we're honest to ourselves, if we've been playing this game of image and popularity, it does make us weary. Whether it's with the people around us, whether it's with God himself, it wears us down trying to live the perfect life, trying not to be pushed out of the cold, trying not to be rejected. We don't like loneliness. So we fight for popularity. We fight for acceptance. We fight for people to want me because I've got it together. But what it's all touching on, the, the carol and the passage we read today, is touching on why it's uh, this birth of Jesus, a baby, is going to fix up this weariness, fix up the games we're playing, fix up this whole tiredness that we've got from, 
from putting on the, the persona and trying to fool everybody, trying to keep the standard up. But how Jesus fixed up the world 2,000 years ago, but even today, even today saves us from that weariness, gives us great reason to rejoice in a season of weariness when we're doing these things. And we find this in the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph's an interesting character. We need to look into his story a little bit more because he's, he's got the image. He is the good guy. He's got his act together. He seems a very popular sort of guy. But he's living in a time where he's got this public disgrace happening. Now, a few things we know about Joseph. We don't know heaps about Joseph, but just from even these few words, uh, we can see a few interesting things that are going on. He's described as a man who's faithful to the law, or some translations of the Bible use that he's a righteous man, which kind of means the same thing. It means he's a good guy in, in his religious circles. So he's living in, yeah, sort of that 0 BC, AD, 0 anyway, time Jesus was born, where we set our calendars around. Uh, in Jewish circles, so Jesus was born a Jew, he's born into this religious setting. Now, for Joseph, he's a man of the law, it says. The Jews were very serious about the law. The law does a couple of things. The law that's set out in the Old Testament sets out how to live for God. So not, not earn favour towards God to, to get you into heaven, but to, to show God that you are truly Lord and you're truly my King and I want to live for you. So you look at God's laws and say, how do I express my love for you? How do I express that you are my Lord? Is I'm going to obey your commands. I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to live a life that you've set out for me. God's a creator of us, creator of the world. His plan is the best plan. So how about we live according to his rules? And that's going to glorify him. Joseph seems to be doing a great job. A great job. It's just to say that he's righteous, faithful to the law. That's a big compliment in those circles. He's a guy that's got his act together. He's you know, squeaky clean as far as uh, being accepted to God through his actions. But also in those circles, if you're obedient to the law, the law is good for community as well, for the people around you. So instead of being the guy who's selfish and self-centered, the law helps us to be giving and humble. So he's a good person to be around. Other people can see that. Man, that Joseph guy, He's a righteous man. I like being around him because he's generous, he's humble, he's encouraging. So it actually says a lot in just those few words. But we're also told he's in the line of King David. Uh, some th a thousand years before, King David ruled over Israel. King David was the one who uh, set out the empire, who got rid of the enemies, he established Jerusalem. Like He did a lot of amazing things. King David wrote a lot of the Old Testament through the Psalms, uh, expressed his love for God in amazing ways. So David's a guy that you admire. To be in the line of David's like, man, you're a good heritage. You're a good family to be in the line of David. And it seems like everybody knew it. You know, nobody would know our family heritage from a thousand years before. But these guys, for the Jews, if you're in the line of David, you're in a good family. So he's in a good family, he's righteous, he's law-abiding. There's good standards there. But can you imagine being Joseph, the pressure? The pressure to keep up those standards. You know, for us, you know, if we're tired, we're ratty, we've had a big week, you're going to have a bad day. Not for Joseph, he's in the line of David. He's, he's a righteous man. Joseph doesn't have bad days. Well, he's not meant to. 
he's not meant to. It's a, it's a high bar to jump. Now you can imagine if Joseph walked into here, walked into our church here, some yeah, 2,000 years later, uh, he's the sort of guy that we'd try and warm to because he is that humble guy, giving guy, law-abiding guy, important guy, he's kind of like royalty. He's the kind of guy that you might say, hey, you know, come meet all our young adults, adults if he's a single guy, come, you know, here's, you know, there's some nice girls you might want to meet in, in, in this church here. You might want to meet them. But in fact, for Joseph, he's already betrothed. He's already uh, been kind of like engaged, it says. Uh, he's pledged to be married is his family situation. So what used to happen back in those times, yeah, it's kind of confusing. Is he, is he pledged? Is he engaged? Is he married? Because he's going to talk about divorce. But what they used to do is... Early on, uh, the parents used to get together and go, don't our kids look cute together? How about we pledge them to be married together? And that's kind of officially starting their relationship. They're not, it's not technically like we would call engaged. They haven't set a wedding date. Could be years away yet. But it's kind of like these two are going to be saved for each other and we can start planning their life together. They can start, you know, giving them gifts together for their future marriage. Now, that was taken so seriously that uh, even though the wedding date hasn't happened yet, they haven't moved into each other, they're not sleeping with each other, they're doing everything right you know, as far as God's law goes, that if something happened, something would have to happen really serious to break that off. And in fact, it's called so serious that's called a divorce. Even though they're not married, if something happened and that broke off, like uh, if one of them had an affair, like committed adultery, uh, that's grounds for divorce, so they could break it off but it have to be really serious and it would kind of be embarrassing too because you know they're not even married yet and they're already not doing the right thing for each other uh, but that's kind of relationship that they're not married yet they're not moved in with each other yet but they're pledged to be married joseph to mary now this is where it gets a bit messy because the words we have written for us here says but mary she was found to be pregnant now, what's recorded here is no real conversation between Mary telling Joseph, hey, guess what? Uh, it's kind of like a bit of a surprise to Joseph, like he might have heard by the parents, by the grapevine, that, hey, Mary's found to be pregnant. Like, how did that happen? That's a real shock. Now, this is an, ex an, ex an example of how to keep your reputation. It's a real question here for Joseph. He's got a great reputation, he's law-abiding, you know, he's accepted into the, down the synagogue with all his Jewish mates. But now his girlfriend, or the girl he's pledged to be married with, is having a baby. Now, this is embarrassing for him in a number of ways. It's embarrassing because he is a man of reputation, he goes down to the synagogue, everybody thinks highly of him, but now he goes down and his mates are going, oh, so where's Mary, you know? Who's she with tonight? You know, poking fun at him because he's been rejected for, oh, sounds like, obviously another man. This doesn't sound good. So what's he going to do with that? But it's also a disgrace to his family. He's in the line of David, yet his girlfriend's got pregnant in this religious culture, in this religious circle. This is bad, looks bad on the family as well. His parents and his distant family, that now he might have this illegitimate child thing going on. It's bad. It looks bad. It looks bad for his reputation. But how do we manage the, the disgrace for him? How's he going to protect his reputation? 
Well, it says he's going to divorce her quietly. You know, I'm going to look after her. If I do it on the quiet, nobody will even notice. She can go away and have a child to the other man. But it's also a little bit like if I do it quietly, I'm not embarrassing myself as much either. That's what it comes across as. If I do it all quietly, it'll all go away, hopefully. Now, you can imagine being in Joseph's situation a bit. There's lots of times we're in a situation where we've done things or things out of our control have looked bad on us. And what's our first response? How can we minimise this? How can we get out of this looking good? How can I get out of it without losing my reputation? Because I want to come out of everything looking good, right? So while he's pondering this, what, what will I do? How can I come out looking squeaky clean, keep my reputation? The angel appears. <clears throat> and an angel appears uh, with some words for him. Because the baby explains how actually God is the dad. The angel addresses him. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we realise, it's good news for Joseph because he realises Mary hasn't been going off and having an affair, but actually God is the dad. God has been uh, at work um, uh, making her pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now God's the creator God, God can do things like that. If he's a creator God, he's not uh, out of his means to be able to do that. But the big take-home thing for Joseph at this point is, well, man, at least Mary hasn't been unfaithful to me. At least, you know, there's, there's something there still. That's the good news. But the bad news is still, it's still pretty awkward for Joseph. How's he going to explain this to his mates? How's he going to explain it to his parents? Oh, it's all right, Mary hasn't been having an affair and we haven't been doing the wrong thing before marriage, but God's got a pregnant. You can imagine trying to explain that to your family or your friends. It's like, how does that work? Either you're on another planet or you don't understand how nature works. or you know, you, you, It's hard to come out of this without being thought of badly about it. So it's still an awkward situation. But as, as the story goes on, he's got to wrestle with that. What do I do with that? It's still, you know, to be in Joseph's shoes. But now God, we've established now God is the father. And in that culture... The father has naming rights over the child. So the angel is going to explain how um, she'll give birth to a son, you give him the name Jesus. Now, this sort of answers a lot of questions. If you've been reading the Old Testament and you see a lot of these kids in the Old Testament have weird names, and if you're a mum and go, I would never name my child that, you know, like son of death or something, son of illness or unrecoverable, um, I would never name my child because the dad names the children. The dad, no, you can blame the dad for all those things. And names mean something. In that culture, more than ever, names mean something. And you've got to look to the meaning to understand what the, the life of this person is going to be. Now, I was named, I don't know whether my mother or father named me, but Ross means uh, the guy who looks after the horses. So if we ever had a horse wander in here, and you know what horses do, right? They leave their trail of mess. Whose job is it to be on the shovel following the horse? Ross, that's his job. I've got the shovel in my hand ready to go. That's my job. That's the expectation. Well, I'm not sure whether my parents knew that at the time. But for Jesus, it's interesting. His name's got a great meaning because Jesus uh, is the Greek in this culture. They're now speaking Greek. Uh, but it's the Hebrew, the Old Testament language for Joshua. Joshua means he saves. 
So if you think of Joshua in the Old Testament, he went out and uh, saved Israel from all their enemies. He conquered the other nations to save Israel. Now, that's Joshua. In the Greek, uh, it's pronounced Jesus. Now, Jesus, the angel said, he's going to save. This is the meaning of his name. But he's not going to save us just from our enemies, our other nations. He's going to save people from their sins. This is much bigger much, much bigger. Jesus is going to save us from our biggest enemy in sin. Now, for Joseph, I think this is great news. It's exciting news. Because Joseph is the impressive guy, right? He's the religious guy. You know, obeys the law to the T. He's in the line of David. Doesn't do anything wrong because I've got royal blood in my veins, he goes. That's a hard act to live up to to be continually righteous, to be continually living up to family expectations. It's a hard act. But if Jesus saves us for our sins, he saves us from when we fall and stumble, when we make a mess of things. See, for Joseph, we could describe the righteousness is, or, or faithful to the law, the term uh, our Bible used, is when you just obey all the things that God loves to see. If God loves you to do these things, to live his ways, it's like a tick. Tick, you know, you're generous. Tick, you love God. Tick, you're, you're living for him every day and not yourself. Tick, you're, you're serving others like God served us. But every time we muck up, every time we uh, don't love others, every time we get angry, every time we get self-centered, every time we push God away, it's like a F for fail or F for if a fall, you've fallen short of the righteousness of God and you fail. And it's like this, in the way we live in obedience to God, it's like this, are we going to live the righteous life, the perfectly righteous, or are we going to, to fail or fall short of that? So we get this measure, this critique of our lives. How are we going, you know, not just in our hands and our actions, but our heart and our thoughts as well, how are we going with that? Because it's not a 50-50 thing of, as long as my good outweighs my bad, I should be okay to get to heaven and be with God for all eternity. It's not a set of scales like that. It's not even like an exam. If you get over 50%, you pass and you get, you get you know, the ticket, golden ticket into heaven. It's like if God is a holy God, a perfectly holy God, for us to be friends with him, to us to spend eternity with him, 50-50 won't cut it. We have to be perfectly holy as well. And that's hard. That's hard. It's hard work to, to be righteous. It's hard work to live up to God's expectations. It's hard work to live up to his expectations, let alone other people's expectations, my expectations. It's a burden. And it's a burden that we, it's hard, as hard as we try, we keep failing at it. And we keep failing and failing and this failing is called sin in the Bible. It's sin as when we fail. It's sin that drives us to be self-centered. It's sin that drives us to be thinking the world's about me. I don't want to follow God. But Jesus is going to come and address that sin. Can you imagine if we try and measure up and we go, these are all the ticks, these are all the Fs, any Fs mean you fail. You're lost. You can try harder, you can do more, but you'll never catch up. But if Jesus is going to come and say, look, I'm going to deal with the sin, means 
I'm going to take every F, every fail that you've got, I'm going to take that. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to save you from that. And because Jesus lives the perfect life, perfectly righteous, perfectly law-obedient, perfectly loves the Father, perfectly lives it out, He gives us His ticks. He gives us His righteousness. So when God sees us, He will see us as like His very own Son, Jesus. So that means we don't have to perform perfectly to be a friend of God. We don't have to be performing to to be accepted by God and to have eternal life. Of course we want to love Him, but we're going to fall short. Now can you imagine the pressure that relieves for someone like Joseph? I've got a great reputation going already. People think I'm awesome. I've got the line of David. You know, everything's going for me. But the pressure to perform every day, don't fail, don't fail, don't fail, to now he knows Jesus, this, this baby that's going to come is going to deal with his sin. Even if you do fail, you're still okay with God because of Jesus. The, the load that's taken off your shoulders, that it's not up to you. But even for us, you know, if... We've got these level of expectations of our, whether it's our religious expectations, you know, obedience to God or our expectations with other people. If Jesus was to take that load saying, you no longer have to fear rejection, you no longer have to fear being pushed away and left alone, but trusting in this one, Jesus, means you will be accepted, you will be loved, you will be a friend of God because of what this baby's going to do, this Jesus is going to do. And it's no surprise, God is not far off watching us like a judge. Oh, you've blown it, you've stuffed up, you're out of the picture. But he actually wants to get involved in our mess to fix our mess. So he goes on to say that God has been planning this for a long time. And we're reminded in the passage how this took place to fulfill what was said by the prophets hundreds of years earlier. The virgin will give birth to a son, they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, another name for him, that God is actually going to be with us. Now, this also has good and bad news. It's, well, let's do the bad first. It's bad news because if God's with us, he knows when we're playing games. For Joseph, God is going to be in his family. He's going to be seeing, you know, what you're like down at the synagogue. You know, you're very impressive, very religious, but I know you're home, you're a terrible dad. There's no games anymore. God's going to see it. And it's bad news for us. If God's in our world, which he is through Jesus, God knows that when you're putting up the, 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 the cover of perfection and knowing when you're playing the game and trying to fool everyone, including his Father God. Jesus knows that. No more games. But it's also good news that Jesus is with us knowing that he knows our mess. He knows why we play the games. He knows why we do the things we do. He empathises with us in a way that he's lived in our shoes, walking the walk, going to his workplace, dealing with people. He knows the life where we live. So God with us is good news that he, that he can understand us. Now, how does this change things for Joseph? Because he's got a decision to make. What does he do with this baby Jesus? Because he could still walk away now, saving some faith, saving some embarrassment, still divorce her quietly. He could still be the religious Joseph, the guy who everybody thinks is really righteous, the guy in the line of David. He could still save something. 
But if he does that, he's going to keep the pressure on his shoulders, the pressure to perform, the pressure of perfection, the, the pressure of keeping my reputation so I'm liked and accepted and everybody likes me. But if he goes the Jesus way, according to God's plan, not only this is what God has laid out for you and Mary, but it's also, hey, this Jesus, he's going to take the pressure off. I can trust him. That through him I'm going to be accepted. Through him I'm going to be loved. Through him I'm going to be saved. Because that's what Jesus is going to do. And he does it. He chooses with his actions. He, he believes and puts that into actions. Puts his belief into action by taking Mary home. Marrying her. He doesn't lay with her. Uh, but he, he supports her until she gives birth to Jesus. And he names the boy Jesus. Because he's going to save people from their sins. So, for Joseph, I can imagine this is a real roller coaster. And I think for many of us too, I think we can associate with that. That for us, if we've been trying to play the religious game, we know if we're going to come to church, we've got to make sure people think I'm okay, I don't want them to know all this stuff, I've got to make sure I'm accepted. We fear being alone so much that we hide so much of our lives, we lock it away, that we can't be ourselves that we can't grow in our relationships with others because we're hiding this, this other person behind us. But if, we're, if we see what Joseph is, is going through, that actually I can, through Jesus, if I fail, I can always come back to God. Failure doesn't mean I'm kicked out alone forever, but God's going to accept me. It's a big lesson what Jesus is coming to. And we see it in the life of Jesus. Where does Jesus go as a man when we start to read the gospel and his story? He goes to those who are broken, those who are rejected, those who are alone. He goes to those people to say, you're welcoming to the kingdom. Follow me. Trust me. He says, not on your performance. Trust me. But it also helps us, not just in our relationship with God, but if we know we're accepted by God, the creator of the universe, our Father God, it helps us with our relationships all around us as well. To know that if I'm accepted by God through Jesus, that's the relationship that matters. That means even though I'm, I haven't got my act together, even though I stuff up all the time, that I'm accepted into that family... God's family changes the way I relate to the people around me. If I experience grace, I can start showing grace. If I've experienced God's love, I can start showing God's love to other people. And it changes who we are and how we deal with people around us. It leaves us feeling, you know, none of us likes to be alone, but, but to know that Jesus is with us, that we're not alone. We're not alone through what he does. In fact, what Jesus does when he comes with us, he takes the aloneness, he takes the rejection. When he went to the cross, he goes through all that stuff that we fear most. His friends abandon him on the cross. They reject him. They don't want to be, you know, when people say, hey, you were with that man in Jesus. They say, no, we weren't. They reject him. He's even left alone on the cross when, he's, when he says, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Through his death, He's, he's had this cut off from God in that moment that he feels abandoned and left alone. We fear that the most, don't we? We feel abandoned, feel left alone, feel rejected. But Jesus is saying, look, I've done that. And spiritually, if he's done that, 
He's given us his perfect righteousness, his perfect record. So we don't have to fear that anymore with God. That God will never reject us, never abandon us, never leave us alone. Jesus took that and dealt with that for us. So we can find the joy living in a relationship with him, the joy of living in the relationship with others, because now, even though I'm not perfect, I know everybody else is not perfect, but I've experienced grace, I've experienced love, I've experienced compassion from him, I can share that with other people. It's reason to rejoice. It's reason to go, I can give up my weariness, I don't have to perform anymore, and now I can rejoice, because I've got Jesus. I've got Jesus. I don't have to perform anymore, and I want to live for him. Now, I think this is good reason. I think Joseph has given us just a little taste of Jesus' ministry, what it's going to be like throughout the rest of the gospel. But I think it's real reason for us to rejoice this Christmas. And I'm going to pray now, and I pray that you'll find this freedom, the load lifted off, that it's not about your performance anymore, but it's about trusting in Him and find security in Him. Let me pray. Dear Father, thank you for your love for us, that you would send your son Jesus into a messy, messy world. And Lord, if we think we've got it together, if we think we're doing okay, Lord, we're probably even playing games with ourselves. But Lord, thank you for knowing us, knowing that even in our imperfections, even in our pride, our arrogance, our self-centeredness, that you still come to us, reach out to us in Jesus. Thanks for his love for us that was so great that you would save sinners, even like me, even like us. Lord, let us be a church that shows that love to all people. Let's be a church that doesn't set a bar of religious expectations, a church of grace that accepts people, points them to Jesus for salvation. Lord, use us to shine your light in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.